be seated. I guess I should be grateful I found my way back up here, right? <laughs> well, this morning we're continuing our sporadic series on the amazing stories of some of the little-known people in the Bible. And today's message I've titled, The Mighty Widow's Might, The Life of the Rich, Poor Woman. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We'll be, uh, begin at verse 41. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's one right in front of you, and you can uh, find that passage on page 797. If you didn't bring a paper Bible with you, you can easily download a Bible app onto your phone. Uh, you can use Bible Gateway, Uversion Bible, or the Gideon Bible app and put those on your electronic device. Uh, by the way, Bible uh, Gateway and the Gideon Bible app both have multiple languages. So if English is not your first language, you can easily read the scriptures in your native tongue. So we're going to be starting here in Mark chapter 12, verse uh, 41 is where we're going to start, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. And he sat down, this is speaking of Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor woman came, or poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning to understand your word and to find ways that we can apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I know that some of you, maybe a lot of you are thinking, oh great, a sermon on giving. Well, first of all, counting today, I have now preached 39 sermons at FAC, and this is the first one on giving. But this story is about more than putting money in the offering. It's also about how God cares for widows and how God cares for the poor. And maybe most importantly, about how God sees our hearts and our attitudes as we give. But since you think this is about money, let me tell you a story. I heard a story about a missionary who had asked a new convert, Pablo, if you had a hundred sheep, would you give 50 of them to the Lord? And Pablo replied, you know that I would gladly give them. So the, the missionary asked again, Pablo, if you had 50 cows, would you give 25 of them to the Lord's work? Of course I would. I'd be more than happy to do that, Pablo replied. Once again, the missionary asked Pablo, if you had two pigs, would you give one of them to the Lord's work? And Pablo said, that's not fair. You know I have two pigs. <laughs> now, how often have we said, if I only had more, I would give more? Or maybe if I won a million dollars in the lottery, I would give half of that to the church. A more honest reply was given in a popular song a number of years ago, if I had a million dollars. The songwriter talks about all the things that he would do for his girlfriend, giving her this thing and that thing. But the song ends by him singing, if I had a million dollars, I'd be rich. Well, let's get back to our story now. I want you to picture this kind of uh, as you put a few more details onto this story. It's a mild Sabbath morning in the Palestinian city of Jerusalem, probably much like today's day. 
The sun is not yet risen to full strength, but people are already lined up down the dusty road that leads towards the holy temple. There's smoke in the air from the sacrifices that have already been burned on the offering or the altar. And in that uh, slow-moving line, there are both rich people and poor people alike. And they have brought their offerings that they're going to give to the Lord God Jehovah. The line leads to a small square room lined with metal collection boxes. And these boxes have metal, kind of looks like horns extending out of them that would receive the offerings of the people. I think there's a picture of what that might have looked like up there on the screen. Now, because they didn't have paper money in those days, the coins would make a constant clanging noise as they were putting into these offering boxes. And most of the people are shuffling along, making their donation, and moving along. But one person who has already given his offering stands over in the corner with his disciples. Who do you suppose that is? Come on, this is the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus, right? And notice what the Bible does not say. The scripture does not say that Jesus is watching to see how much they are giving, but rather how they are giving. Of course, also in this room supervising the money boxes are several priests. And as these wealthy citizens pass by, they drop in their coins and they make a loud noise. And of course, they want everybody to notice this, right? Hey, Chuck. Hey, how you doing, Frank? Good to see you today. Makes a loud noise, doesn't it? Janice, good to see you. Larry, good to see you too. Larry, it, notice it, see? They make a loud clanging noise with the many coins that they are noisily dropping in. They seem to draw favored glances from those who are watching, and many people seem quite impressed at the generosity of those who toss in an abundance of big, heavy coins into those boxes. And it's not surprising that nobody pays attention to the one shabbily dressed, probably elderly lady who enters the room alone. Only one person sees her, and that is the one who sees everything. The widow stops at the place where the offerings are collected, and then she reaches into her satchel and she draws out two small, rather insignificant coins. The King James Version calls them mites. The mite was the smallest currency used by the Romans. You probably can't even see these. These are replicas, but there's a picture behind me on the screen. A mite known as the lepton in the Greek language was the smallest and least valuable coin in circulation in first century Judea. A mite is worth about six minutes of an average daily wage. Now, if we kind of look at our society, federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. So two mites today in the U.S. economy would be about 75 cents. But there are 3 billion people, almost half the world's population today, that live on less than $2 a day. If a mite was worth six minutes of a $2 day, then a mite would be about two and a half cents. So she drops both of these lightweight coins into that big box quietly. She doesn't want anybody to notice. There's just a faint click that's drowned out by the continuing heavy clanking noise made by the more substantial coins that are dropped in by the wealthy patrons. 
nobody notices this woman. After all, what difference does her two small coins make? But Jesus is impressed. He is so impressed that he singles this woman out to his disciples and says that her offering is more important than all of those given by the wealthy and those with prestige. And he recognizes her seemingly uneventful giving by telling the the disciples and by having this episode permanently recorded, not only in the Gospel of Mark, but also in the Gospel of Luke, ensuring her place in history. After reading about this event, we might wonder, why was Jesus so impressed with the widow who gave her two mites? What was it that caused him to stop and single her out in the crowd? Why did he honor her minute gift so publicly? Well, I want to look at three reasons why I believe Jesus was impressed with her giving. But before we look at that, I want us to look at how the religious leaders felt about this woman, a poor widow, and her gift. In the culture of those days, about 2,000 years ago, women were viewed as less important than men. Now, please do not fail to notice that I did not say the Bible teaches this or that God views women as inferior. This is what the people or the men of that time thought, and the Bible records it. That doesn't mean that this is biblical teaching. The legal position of a woman in Israel was weaker than that of a man. When having a family, male children were viewed as an extreme blessing, but the female were not viewed that way. Since society at that time was male-dominated, women's rights were sometimes overlooked. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees taught Jewish men to pray this prayer. I thank God that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. This shows their attitude not only towards women, but toward those that didn't have much in the way of material wealth. But Jesus obviously did not agree with those thoughts, nor did he treat women as less than. Many of his followers were women. He stood up for women when they were being downtrodden. So what I'm trying to communicate here is that the Pharisees would not have valued this widow as a person, and they certainly would not have valued her as a giver. But that's not how Jesus feels. So now let's go back to exploring three reasons why I believe Jesus was impressed with this woman's giving. First, Jesus knew things about the widow that nobody else knew. How did Jesus know about this poor widow's state? You might argue that Jesus was able to deduce things just by looking at her, by looking at her appearance. She was likely dressed as a poor person, Maybe her robes were frayed and her sandals were worn out. If she gave her last two and a half cents to the collection box, she certainly didn't have money to go shopping. Also, she was probably alone. The passage makes it sound like she was alone, and she obviously was not with a husband. But how did Jesus know that the two mites that she gave were all that she had? I tell you that how Jesus knew such intimate details was because Jesus was not like any other man. Jesus was and is God in the flesh. It was no big deal for Jesus to have supernatural knowledge about this woman. He's done this before. For example, in John chapter 4, the story of the Samaritan woman, the woman from Sychar, 
Let me just read a little bit from the middle of that passage. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And then the woman said to him, understatement of the century, right? Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Jesus knew things about her that she tried to keep a secret. Now let's go back to Mark chapter 12. Not only did Jesus know this widow's circumstances, he knew her heart. I believe he could feel her love from God flowing out of her. I feel very strongly that this widow was not giving her last two coins out of obligation, but out of love for God. And the Lord knows things about us that nobody else knows. And that can be very comforting, that Jesus knows us intimately. Think of it this way. Your best friend knows you better than anyone, especially if that person is also your spouse. And that's a comforting thought, that the person who loves you knows you intimately and still wants to be your friend. But that can also be a very sobering thought, that the thoughts that we try to hide from everyone, Jesus knows those things about us as well. Jesus not only knows about our external acts, but he knows about the very uh, things that are going on in our hearts. And Jesus was always just as concerned about our attitudes and our heart as with our actions. That's why he ignored the pompous, glory-seeking hypocrites who were giving large amounts, but notice this poor widow and her small offering. Now, when you go to a doctor for your annual checkup, the doctor is going to poke and prod and push in various places while asking, does this hurt? How about this? And if you cry out in pain, one of two things has happened. Either the doctor is not very sensitive and he's pushing too hard, or there's something wrong. And he'd say, well, we better do some more tests because it's not supposed to hurt there. So it is when a pastor preaches on financial responsibility and certain people cry out in discomfort and they criticize both the message and the messenger. Either the pastor has pushed too hard or perhaps there's something wrong. In that case, I say, my friend, we're in need of the great physician because it's not supposed to hurt there. Let me assure you that if you are struggling, as this widow was, that Jesus knows and he understands your plight. Are you suffering emotionally today? Are you burdened with worries and concerns? Are you going through a financial, physical, emotional, or spiritual crisis? Jesus knows all about our struggles. There is no other friend like Jesus. Now the second thing, Jesus knew the attitude in which this widow gave. The passage of Scripture is often used as a springboard for a sermon on giving, but I think it goes way beyond that. Did you know that technically this woman didn't even have to be at the temple to give an offering? She didn't have to tithe. I mean, how do you take these two smallest coins that are in circulation and give 10% of this? The very least that she could do was give one coin, which would have been 50%. So why was the widow there? 
That's where her attitude comes into play. She loved God completely, and she wanted to give to him. This woman truly wanted to give, even if it didn't matter to anyone, even if they knew the minuscule amount that she was giving, even if they misunderstood and thought that she had more at home. We should also be impressed with the unassuming way in which she gave. She didn't make a big show. She didn't let people know that this was a huge sacrifice for her. She gave quietly and unassumingly. The wealthy patrons wanted everyone to know how much they were giving. They made a big show of it. But this woman quietly and cheerfully sacrificed her whole living, not just a portion of what she had, and she didn't tell a soul. Here's the third thing. Jesus knew that she was willing to place herself in the hands of God. This woman apparently had no one else to help her in life. Her husband was dead. We don't know how long that had been, but she was left destitute. We have to assume that she didn't have any other relatives because the Levitical law would have called on them to help support her. She was all alone. She had come in by herself. She wasn't even with a friend. When we think about those two little coins and what they represented to this woman, to a wealthy person, two mites were like pennies to most of us. And if we saw a penny in the parking lot, we probably wouldn't even bend over to pick it up. Yet to this woman, these two coins were the sum total of her livelihood. They represented her last meal. It was absolutely all that she owned. But something incredible happened when this poor widow gave her all. She became totally dependent on God. And that's when you can see God do incredible, even miraculous things in your life. When you don't know where your, your next meal is coming from, it's great to see God at work. Let's take a few minutes and and discuss about how God feels about widows. Now, if you're not a widow, this may not seem applicable, but I assure you that God has a lot to say about widows. So let's explore this. Now, obviously, a widow is somebody whose husband has died. But often in Scripture, when widows are referred to, it appears to carry the idea of a woman whose husband has died who also has no one else to provide for her. That's why widows are often grouped with other vulnerable members of society, such as the orphans and the aliens and the poor. The Bible says widows are to be treated with honor and compassion and to be offered protection so that no one takes advantage of them. In biblical times, one of the primary purposes of a married woman was to produce children and heirs to carry on the family line. So a childless widow would therefore endure double adversity with no husband to provide for her and protect her and no son to carry on the family name and to care for her in her old age. She might have been considered a disgrace to her community and left in a precarious position. God recognized the plight of of widows and rose to their defense. Let me just read a few scriptures to you. The first is from Psalm chapter 68, verse 5. Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. And a person who denied justice to a widow was cursed by God. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 19. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner. That's somebody who doesn't have a permanent home. 
somebody who's homeless, the fatherless and the widow, and all the people shall say amen. Laws and special provisions were put into place to protect widows against neglect and abuse. At harvest time, widows could glean in the fields of grain and gather the leftover grain and grapes and olives. Deuteronomy 24:19 says, "When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be left for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all your work of your hands." The primary Old Testament law that protected widows from poverty and cruel treatment was called the Leveret Marriage. And the purpose of that law was to ensure that a man who died before producing a son might still be guaranteed a male heir. And so an unmarried brother of the widow's husband would take the widow as his wife and perform the Leveret duty. The first son that was born to the widow was regarded as the legal descendant of her deceased husband. And then any further children would be the, the heirs of the now uh, the brother and his new wife. The law of the Leveret marriage is illustrated several times in the Old Testament stories, one of them being Tamar and Onan, but more uh, famous is Ruth and Boaz. In the New Testament, widows were given special consideration. James chapter 1, verse 27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And if you go back to our passage in Mark chapter 12 and go one verse before where we started in verse 40, you will read about Jesus condemning the Pharisees for their ill treatment of widows. God has deep compassion for those who are left alone, and the church is to demonstrate that same kind of compassion. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, the Apostle Paul gives a detailed outline of how the church and individual families are to care for widows. Now, of course, it's not the sole duty of the church to care for widows. It's the duty and obligation of families to care for their aging and needy family members. Christian children and grandchildren have a special privilege and an opportunity to put their faith in action by giving back love and support to their parents and grandparents, and especially to widows who are alone. In today's Western societies, where independence takes precedence over family relationships, I think we've lost sight of God's value and purpose for creating extending families. But among God's people, families ought to be among the primary sources of support for widows. Since God honors widows and treats them with compassion, we as believers should do the same thing. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17 says, Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. So you might be wondering, does FAC care for the widows who are part of our church family? I believe we do through the following ministries. Grief share. It provides spiritual and emotional support for all those who have lost loved ones, but especially for widows. And there are brochures that are backed by the hub. You remember I told you where the hub was? You can find these brochures back in that area. And the leaders of that ministry are Greg and Linda Paulding and Paul and Lucy Singer. 
and they can tell you more about this great ministry. Anna's Sisters is a ministry of encouragement, comfort, and empathy for women who are going through the difficult time following the death of their husband. Again, there are brochures near the hub, and the leaders of that ministry are Judy Inman and Debbie Horton. They can tell you much more about that ministry. There's another ministry called G610. That stands for Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. It's a ministry helping widows and the elderly with general household jobs or repairs. And that ministry is fueled by volunteers at FAC. If you want more information about that, you can contact Andy Boncella or myself. And that can be either to receive help or to volunteer your talent and your time. Benevolence is a ministry that financially helps those who are in need with widows at the top of the list. And you can give to the Benevolence Fund at any time, but we also take a special offering every Christmas Eve called the Magi Offering. The leaders of that ministry are Jim Cabaney and myself. But also you. This would be like the Uncle Sam poster, right? I know that many of you help widows without being part of a specific ministry and without any fanfare. Two recently retired men are now mowing three acres of lawn for a recently widowed regular attender at FAC. No announcement was made. No plea was made uh, or a request made for help. It was a silent need met out of love for God and a desire to help someone in need. Now you're probably wondering, well, does FAC care for those in financial need that aren't necessarily widows? Again, benevolence. I told you about that ministry a few minutes ago. It helps more than just widows. It also helps single-parent families, the unemployed, and those who are experiencing financial emergencies. We have a food pantry. Those who are in a lower-income bracket can come to the Barnabas House near the old barn on the corner of our property and receive food at no cost on alternating Tuesdays and Thursdays. The ministry leaders of that are Barb Ertle and Ron Bowerly. They can give you more information. We also partner with the City Mission to restore hope and transform lives. And one of the newer ministries here is called Sunday Suppers. We partner with First Presbyterian Church of the Covenant to provide a nutritious meal on Sundays to those who are less fortunate. For more information about that, to volunteer in making the meals and helping with that, contact Rita Bagnoni. And again, you. I've heard many stories of how many of you help in big and small ways. Now let's look uh, about how God sees our hearts and our attitudes when we give. I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 to look at what God is looking for when we give. This passage is about the collection that's being taken in the church in Corinth for the benefit of the suffering church in Jerusalem. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, beginning at verse 1, that's on page 910 of the Pew Bible. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, he's talking about their readiness to give, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you, 
for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead, uh, go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an, ex- uh, as an exaction. The point is this, verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, that's obviously speaking of God, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be rich? No, so that you can be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Let me share with you one negative and one positive example of giving, one each from the Old Testament and the New Testament. First of all, the negative example from the Old Testament is that of King Saul. He was the first king of Israel, and he only had a half a heart for God. At one point, God told him to completely wipe out the people who hated God and did evil in his sight, but Saul decided to keep some of the spoils of victory, like a few sheep, so that he could have lamb chops for dinner. He said it was so that he could make a sacrifice to God. Then he lied about this to the prophet Samuel and to God, saying that he hadn't done that. Samuel, in a very poignant reply, asked the disobedient king, then what is this bleeding of sheep that I'm hearing? 1 Samuel 15:22 says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Here's a a bad example from the New Testament. A husband and wife team, Ananias and Sapphira. They were part of the early New Testament church. They sold some land that they owned and they donated part of the proceeds to the church. Sounds great, doesn't it? But they conspired to lead the Apostle Peter and others to believe that they donated the entire sum. And for conspiring to lie as they did and lying to the Holy Spirit, they were both struck dead. There was nothing wrong with giving only a part of the proceeds. It was their attitude of deception and their pride that made this a sin. How about some positive examples? First from the Old Testament. The Israelites, after having been freed as slaves in in Egypt... And coming into the promised land, God is now giving them instructions on how to build the tabernacle, the place where they would worship God. They were instructed to give as they felt prompted, a free will offering, giving of their personal wealth for the building of the tabernacle. Let me just read a few selected scriptures from Exodus chapter 35 and 36. Then those whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought... And they still continued bringing to Moses free will offerings every morning. The workers said, 
The people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work with which the Lord commanded us to perform. Let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. The people were restrained from bringing any more, for the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. I know what you're thinking. I have never heard a pastor say, stop giving. (laughs) Well, maybe that's because no group of people has ever given like the people of Israel gave towards the work of the tabernacle. Let me give you now one more example. This is a positive example from the New Testament from the man named Barnabas. This story is a direct contrast of that of Ananias and Sapphira, and it happened right before that couple made their deception. We're told that Barnabas owned a tract of land, and he sold it, and he brought all of the money and laid it at the apostles' feet without any prompting, without any fanfare. Well, so what? What difference does this make tomorrow morning, right? There are several things that the story of the widow's might teaches us. First, God sees what people overlook. The big gifts in the temple were surely noticed by people, and that's probably what the disciples were watching as well. But Jesus saw what no one else did. He saw the humble gift of a poor widow. This was the gift that Jesus thought worthy of comment. This was the gift that the disciples needed to be aware of. The other gifts in the treasury that day made a lot of noise as they jingled into the the receptacles, but the widow's mites were heard in heaven. Second, God's evaluation is different from ours. The widow's two mites might have added up to very little, according to our way of calculating. But Jesus said that she had given more than anyone else that day. How could this be when many rich people threw in large amounts? The difference is in the proportion. The rich were giving large sums, but they retained their fortunes. The widow put in everything, all that she had to live on. Hers was a true sacrifice. The rich had not even begun to give to the level of her sacrifice. Third, God commends giving in faith. Here was a woman in need of receiving charity, yet she had a heart to give. Even though the amount was negligible, what could a widow's might buy? She gave it to the Lord so that he could use it. The widow's faith is also evident in the fact that she gave the last part of her money. Does that mean that the widow left the temple and went home completely destitute and then died of starvation? No. The Bible teaches that God provides for our needs. See Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. We don't know the details of this particular widow's future, but we can be certain that she was provided for. It's interesting that just before Jesus commented on her gift, he commented on the scribes who devour the widow's houses. The religious officials of the day, instead of helping the widows in need, were perfectly content to rob them of their livelihood and their inheritance. The system was corrupt, and the darkness of the scribes' greed makes the widow's sacrifice shine even more brightly. Our God is a giving God. He is a God of abundance, and he loves to give. He sacrificed willingly on the cross, and then he invited us into that fullness of life. 
as his children, we are called to imitate him. Our generosity and giving is a demonstration of God's character and a response to what he has done for us. Not only does our giving demonstrate God's character to the world, but it also results in increased faith in us. When we're willing to give, we declare that our faith does not depend on our material possessions. Instead, we show that our faith is in God, who is always faithful to provide. I wish the Bible gave us the rest of this story. I would love to know specifically how God used her gift to bless somebody else. I would love to know how God provided for her material needs, but we can only speculate. There is so much that we do not know about this lady. We don't even know her name, and we certainly know nothing about her final outcome, but I am convinced that we'll meet her someday in heaven. But we can know that God took care of her because Psalm 37, 25 says, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the way that you provide for us. We ask that you would help us to be generous givers, not so that anybody notices but out of a love for you. And as we do that, we will see you meet all of our needs. Father, I pray that this church would not only be a generous church, but also would be a helping church, that we would help those who are uh, less fortunate than ourselves, who are struggling financially, who are struggling Uh, with needs, for those that are widows, those who are fatherless, those who are homeless. God, we would be representing your heart when we do that. In Jesus' name, amen.